a lot of these technologies are coming from different areas and coming over. Quite a bit of the move toward uh, hydrogen peroxide, for example, came from the beverage and the food service industry, where that's been a, a mainstay for them that cleans things without leaving residue that impacts the taste of food, but it does take care of the bacteria and things. You are listening to the Manage Mold Podcast. This podcast was made for families on a health journey that need the real, no-holds-barred answers on how to create and ensure a healthy home. This show should be your launching pad to give you the information, guidance, and inspiration and clarity you need on your journey back to a healthy home. My name is Dean Malstead. You can find and follow me on Facebook and LinkedIn. Welcome to Manage Mold. Hello, everyone. This is the Manage Mold podcast, and we have Michael Pinto on again today. And we're going to talk about some things that are new and upcoming in the mold remediation realm. Hi, Michael. Hello, Dean. Thanks for having me on again. Yes, thanks for coming. Why don't you start us out and tell us a little bit about what you're working on? Well, it's an interesting. I've written some articles about this in the past, but it's a subject that keeps coming up. And it's, uh, in some respects, it's a generic subject because I like to watch what's going on in the restoration industry and explain what's going on, but I also try and keep my eyes open in other allied industries and maybe sometimes not even allied industries. And I call this technology transfer, where there's good ideas in other industries that we can often use in a very straightforward way, or at a minimum, we can adapt to what we need to do in the mold remediation industry. And this, I think, is especially important for our sensitized individuals where doing a standard mold remediation may not be enough. I like uh, Dr. Shoemaker's comment. He says where a minute exposure for a sensitized individual can have a major impact. And so that just forces us to really watch what's going on in the industry and see if there's tricks and tips. And even if it's not just for the sensitized, even if it increases our efficiency and improves the general isolation, let's say, and things like that, it can be really interesting. So I thought if we had a few minutes today, I would share some of the things that I've figured out or have seen as industry transfers. And I have to admit that this is not necessarily new information from us at Wondermakers. We tend to learn all of these things in our classes when students bring them up or demonstrate something or ask me a question about what do I think of this, that, or the other thing and forces me to investigate and get a little deeper into a lot of these different technologies. So if that makes sense to you, we can kind of go in that direction. Yeah, that totally makes sense. On our end, it's really interesting you bring it up because we were just talking about HEPA vacuums in particular and battery-powered HEPA vacuums. And so in the Janssen industry, there's a whole lineup of HEPA vacuums. But then when you cross over into the construction industry, you can find some high performers over on that side too. So that's one of the most recent searches we've done. And then at the Healthy Building Summit in Pennsylvania, there was some of this idea shared between academia and the field pros also. So this is good timing, I think, for us. Well, you mentioned vacuums. Let me just start there then, because I also want to mention that not all technology transfer works for us. So when you mentioned HEPA vacuums transferring over from the Jansan industry, there are some very good ones, battery-operated backpack vacs, uh, things like that. 
But some of the vacuums that are trying to transfer over from the construction industry, for example, where they take a standard shop vac and they put a HEPA filter on it and then call it a HEPA vacuum or HEPA filtered vacuum. They may not call it a HEPA vacuum. They may call it HEPA filtered. And it's true, it's got a real HEPA filter on it. But that potential transfer happened about eight or nine years ago and was so badly done, just taking a shop vac, slap a HEPA filter and say, look, we've got a HEPA vacuum, that even the EPA stepped in for their lead RRP program and said, we've done some basic testing here. And if you've got one of these on site, when you're supposed to have a HEPA vacuum, we will cite you because they don't work. I mean, they work, but they don't act like a HEPA vacuum because they're not completely sealed and they're not designed to be. They're shop vacs. So I am so glad you brought that up because we've got a number of clients and I've got a number of connections with people that they're always looking to save some money. And so that's the one part they don't realize how to read through the marketing materials to know that it's actually a HEPA vacuum. Yeah, and a HEPA vacuum implies that it's got... Uh, good seals and that the exhaust is being directed 100% through the HEPA filter and things like that. So even some of the standard consumer vacuums, the Sharknado and things like that, where they have just your regular floor vacuums that have dust collection cups, but then the air is exhausted through the HEPA filters. Now, those are real HEPA filters on those vacuums, and they actually perform fairly well. So when we have uh, some of our sensitized clients and things, if they can't afford four or $500 industrial or Jansan style HEPA filtered vacuum, I'd rather see them buy a $130 Sharknado than just something else that doesn't even have a HEPA filter on it. But you have to understand what you're getting for the money and whether partially good is going to be good enough for you, particularly if you're a sensitized individual or whether you have to just bite the bullet and go in the direction of the more complete piece of equipment. And I should point out, I've already mentioned a couple of trade names here, Dean, just for your listeners. We do not take any finder's fees or sales commissions on any of the products and stuff. When the manufacturers find out a lot of times that we like their stuff and or promoting it in classes or talking about it, they oftentimes will come to us and offer us some sort of discount and things. And what we do in a case like that is we say, hey, we're happy to have a discount on it, but let's apply that discount to our clients. In other words, so there's oftentimes if you're trying to buy something, uh, different vacuums, for example, and I'm just going to be blunt, Nikro vacuums, N-I-K-R-O, if you buy direct from the manufacturer instead of through a distributor, and you mentioned that it's that you found out about it through Wondermakers, they will offer you a fairly substantial discount. I think it's 10 or 15%. So, But that way we can talk about what we like and what we don't like, and we don't feel constrained. And the people that are hearing these names, if they pop up, don't have to worry that it's all about us selling something because it's the only thing we're making money on is if I happen to mention something that's got a Wondermaker name on it. And then right. obviously <laughs> that's us. And so... <laughs> So I just, you know, if you get that stuff out of the way, I'm just so disappointed. In some respects, I'm so disappointed in our industry because you go to these academic conferences. And I did a presentation a little while ago and had some very good data. We did before and after testing. We were interested to see, for example, in this case, whether molds could be removed from carpet and removed effectively. 
And with certain limitations, that's kind of a sidebar, but with certain limitations, you can do that. You know, if it's industrial carpet, it's all one piece. It's got a rubber backing on it that's non-porous and things like that. The commercial grade carpet tiles, for the most part, or rolled carpet that you put in a lot of the buildings, millions of square feet that get wet and then don't get dried properly and get a little uh, mold growth on the surface, and maybe not a little, maybe a fair amount, and that can be cleaned. But we looked at a number of different products, and we found one that works really well. And I'm just going to mention their name, Artemis uh, Bio-Oxygen Carpet Cleaner. Well, if that's what the data shows, and we looked at other ones, and that one performed the best, I don't understand why you go to an academic conference and they say, well, we can't mention any trade names. Then you have to just call up product A and product B. Agreed. And then you show a chart that says, well, product A worked a lot better than product B. And people say, well, which products are those? I can't tell you. Right. I mean, it's just there's certain restrictions in the academic world that I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to keep a lot of info marketing from getting in there. But if it's a legitimate study and they've reviewed it, I have a hard time not being able to give the best information possible to people in the industry. How else would we possibly know? It leaves every it leaves all everyone else to guess when somebody actually has good information. So I saw another program, it wasn't mine, it was another colleague of ours that you would know if I mentioned his name. And he did a study on smoke sealers, not related to mold, but the same sort of thing. And he tested these different products against smoke sealers and he couldn't tell. And, and again, one class of products works a whole lot better than another class and he couldn't really tell us the names of the products. And it's like, you have to go up and buttonhole them afterwards at a break and say, okay, which one was the effective one? But that's just not fair, just because I happen to know the speaker, and so I have a relationship, I can get that extra information. I don't understand why we're so afraid to mention product names. So if anybody gets upset by that, you can pretty much stop this right now, because the next three minutes are probably going to be full of it. Well, and, and as you know me, they could probably stop listening to the podcast, because we operate in the same vein that you do. Okay. Well, with that as a background, let me, because I want to spend some time and just mention these things. I also should mention that some of these things have been around for a while and I don't think that they get used properly or they're just not well known. So if you've got individuals who are listening here and you're thinking to yourself, well, he's just talking old technology and stuff. Just be aware that I travel the country actually internationally, even uh, doing some of the training and presentations and stuff. And it still surprises me that there can be technology that's five, 10 years old, but just hasn't penetrated into our industry uh, very deeply. Or it came out, some people took a quick look at it, kind of got a bad rap. Oh, that's too expensive. And so then they moved on from there. So let's go back and take a look at these. If it makes sense to you, Dean, what I thought I would do is uh, look at a few items related to each of the major aspects of mold remediation. So we'll start with some setup items and then some engineering control items and then some work practices items and then even some uh, PPE items. Does that make sense? That would be fantastic. Okay, so let's just start with some of the stuff that we use for the setup. So typically we tape up uh, plastic barriers and we put zippers in the doors and stuff. And cutting and hanging plastic is an issue. And I warn in my classes about damaging furniture and using razor knives to cut a lot of the folding razor knives now have a, a notch in them where you can actually catch the poly and cut it without bringing the blade out. A better technology that I think are the safety cutters. And these are just inexpensive little plastic devices 
The ones that we use and promote at uh, Wondermakers are called Clever Cutters with a K-L-E-V-E-R-K-U-T-T. So they substitute the K's for the C's. But boy, they're small. They're designed so that somebody can't hurt themselves with it. You won't be able to cut carpet or tabletops or anything. And yet, when you understand how to use them, they work really well. And it protects the blade so that they last a long time. Uh, I know I sound like a salesman or anything, but I've seen them work. I talk about them in class. And it just it speeds up that whole cutting process while minimizing the damage. And you don't always have to think about having a board underneath you or a piece of cardboard and then realize later, you cut through the cardboard because you've cut so many times on top of it. Now you've cut some carpet or something like that. So I know it from a safety standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. It may not be directly related to, you know, doing a better job for the sensitized individual, but the more you can do things efficiently and safely, I think that that's going to add to the overall concept of the project. Speaking of cutting plastic and putting it up and stuff, I've started to become a big fan of the double-sided tapes. When they first came out, the first one that came out was called Easier, E-Z-I-E-R tape. And they actually have glue that's the painter's tape glue on the one side as it comes off the roll. And then when you put it up along the door frame or something and pull the separation, the plastic that separates the two sides of the double-faced tape, the side that's exposed then actually has a very aggressive glue, even as aggressive as some of the best duct tapes. So instead of having to lay down painter's tape and then have that painter's tape wide enough that you can put the plastic down and then put duct tape on top of the plastic to catch the edge and catch the painter's tape and protect everything, it's a one-shot system. And boy, the efficiency on that is such that I think it makes up from what I can tell, and what the contractors who get used to doing it at least tell me the same thing, that it makes up for the extra cost of the tape. Now, that used to be more of a closer calculation, if you will, in terms of will the cost of the tape actually pay for itself when it was only the one tape. But now there's generic versions of this, a very good generic versions. John Don has their own. Ramsco has their own, I'm pretty sure. There's other kind of I don't want to say knockoffs. I think they might be just as good, but the technology's out there now and people have figured it out. And so you can get a lot of different varieties. And so that is, of course, driven the cost down per roll. Yeah. And to the point where that good double face tape is about as expensive as just a really good roll of duct tape. So to me, that makes a big difference. Now, what's interesting about that also is, have you heard of door armor? Yes. D-O-O-R-A-R-M-O-R, door armor. So so this is plastic that comes off a roll that self-sticks on the doors and makes it easier for you to put up these isolation barriers very quickly. It also holds in place. I think it's a little bit more rigorous plastic, if you will, or better grade of plastic probably is a way to put that. Mm-hmm. And then they advertise that you can put your standard zippers on it and stuff. And what I would suggest these days and what I'm learning, actually learned this trick from uh, one of the salesmen for... Uh, oh, the extension poles, which I'm losing my mind on. But uh, zip walls, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Zip wall salesman was showing me this. Instead of just putting the your zipper down in a straight line, you bring it down and then J hook it at the bottom, so that it runs along the floor. And then by doing that for a foot or two at the bottom with a J, and then bringing it up, it actually allows the doors to flap open a little bit more conveniently so that you can take things in and out. And uh, 
it just it makes we've tried it here in some of the hands-on exercises and stuff and it just it makes a big difference one of the things i see quite a bit is the c-shaped door right and that does not work because it provides a trip hazard and you can't get equipment equipment in and out but i see it more and more but yeah the j makes much more sense and then the other thing that you learn with a j shape on the zipper is that you offset it to one side. So instead of starting right in the middle, you started on the left-hand side yep. or right-hand side, so to speak, and then J it over to the left. And then don't bring the tail up on the curve of the J. It's essentially more like a just a curve. Yep. So it runs flat along the bottom to avoid that trip hazard that you're talking about and everything. Yep. Yep. So Perfect. Yeah, no, those are just, I mean, they're little things, but they make a difference. In that same vein, it's been out for a number of years. I still am impressed with it. And as a matter of fact, I had to offer some of my samples to a contractor the other day that was in immediate need of this. The mold hold rolls and sheets, yep. uh, the self-stick plastic that's designed to stick on the wetter surfaces or the mold-contaminated surfaces. In my opinion, any contractor that's not carrying some of those around for an emergency fix, even if you're in for a estimate, and you see gross areas. Now, obviously, if the whole wall is contaminated, that's one thing. But a lot of times you've got a few square feet or you've got a couple of inches above the baseboard, and you can leave that, but you're not really helping the client. And if you had a, one of the rolls of the mold hold and you can run out a four-inch strip and cover the top of the baseboard and the two inches of mold that's going to have to come out anyway, yeah. why not? offer some protection uh, for them so at least that there's not a whole bunch of spores until you can get back or and in a case like that you know there's no guarantee that you may get the bid or anything but you're still doing something right for the industry and for the client so i just i get excited about these things and i think that it makes way too much sense there's other areas in the setup Uh, we talked about the zip wall poles they tend to have a lot of innovations the last few years they have not just sat on their hands. I know a lot of contractors that use load lockers from which are the expandable poles that the uh, semi-truck folks use to hold the loads in place because they're a little bit sturdier and they have a ratchet mechanism instead of a twist and push mechanism. But whichever system you use on these things, you also should take a little bit of time and and understand uh, how they're designed to be used and to be used most effectively. And of course, that's not as much of a problem for me as it used to be, because as an instructor now, I just figure it's my job to read the instructions. But of course, of course, I'm male, and that male gene that says that we don't need to read instructions is still kicking around in my system. So I have to, I have to consciously overcome that. But, you know, just the little things about when you're using zip wall poles or similar style poles, making sure that it's fully compressed, that the top section is fully compressed right at what we call the foot of it, where it's holding onto the ceiling. Otherwise, you're not, you know, taking advantage of the strength of the whole. Right. So, yeah, just spend a few time or spend a few minutes. Virtually every company that I'm aware of that is a you know large company that has sales reps that are out there will come and visit your facility. They love to come and visit your facility. I know we often take advantage of the 3M representatives and just have them come out and say, show us what's new in terms of the personal protective equipment arena and talk with them on the phone and say, well, do you do you know, a lot of elevated work, which we don't. I've certainly worn 
you know, safety harnesses enough when I'm up on roofs and elevated situations and in articulated lifts and things like that. But for the most part, that's not where our focus is. So we tell them, no, we're, you know, respirators, hearing protection, eye protection, come on out and show us what's new and spend a few minutes. You'd be surprised. Obviously for them, it's, it's obviously good sales technique, but whether it's 3M or North or MSA or whoever happens to be your current respirator provider, don't just say, well, we've had this respirator for 10 years. It's worked well. We just keep buying the cartridges. Slow down, talk to some of these reps, get some information in terms of what's going on so that you can just see what's out there. So one of the things, as long as I'm kind of wandered into personal protective equipment, and I know you're familiar with them, the Max Air uh, hood style, helmet style respirators. Just, I think, a significant improvement over the full face PAPRs. And of course, a powered air purifying respirator is a big improvement over a full face respirator, Huge. which is a big improvement over a N100 filtering face piece. Yes. So you just keep walking your way up. I'm much more conscious these days, even on inspections. I do uh, wear an N100 more so than I used to. The N100 isn't as scary to people when you're doing an inspection. But after the inspection, when you're actually getting into disturbing different fungal colonies and things like that, I haven't worn my full face probably in three or four years because in our situation here at Wondermakers, we move pretty much from the N100 filtering face piece to that powered air purifying respirator, yep. that that hood style. That's what we've done in ours too. We, we did that in 2014 when I took my classes with you. And so what's been the experience with you? I mean, I talk about it from an instructor and also, you know, a user standpoint, but I'm not the user. I'm not the one who is out there in that hood eight hours necessarily. On occasion, yes, but not like when you were a contractor and stuff. Yeah, in in doing the work, uh, people are happier. People are healthier. We've had some of us come to work sick a couple of times, really looking like they should go back home. And when they don that, PAPR system, they actually, within about 20 minutes, start feeling better. And that has been an incredible thing to see. And so we know that clean air helps you heal in in real time. And so I still lean towards 3M. And it's interesting because at the Healthy Building Summit, I had a, a discussion about Max Air and 3M. And I think the Max Air has its place. When you get into attics and crawl spaces, there's a durability factor that 3M has got over Max Air. And so you just have to choose what your use is. But even in my case, doing inspections, more and more I'm finding I need to be wearing the PAPRs probably on almost every inspection, just because exposures, you don't know what you're walking into. Well, and the fact that you're out there to do an inspection generally tells you that there's the potential to have something. Yes. So, yeah, and I haven't really gone to that level. That's an interesting discussion. I'll have to think about that. But I will say I like the 3M N100 filtering face piece because it does offer some very good protection and it's not so different than what people see people wearing surgical style masks around on the right. bus and everything. So the N100 isn't scary. Right. Whereas if you put, whether it's a full face PAPR or a hood PAPR, then people start thinking, oh, this is really bad. So but, and, you know, here's the other piece, too, for anyone who's going to be involved in this. The other part is, and I know there's this cross-contamination discussion, but to move, like, on the 3M side of things, to move to the helmet versus the hood, 
especially on the inspection side, to have the shroud that's just around the bottom of the chin without having the whole draped hood, uh, it actually isn't nearly as scary. And I've actually been having a lot of conversations with homeowners that we deal with, and I've asked this question because I've been so very careful about not being the sky is falling person, and I don't want to scare people into anything. I don't like when people do that. It's gimmickry. And most of it's not based on data or good science. And so we've been asking our clients quite a bit more, what would you think if, or what do you see when I put this on? Are you okay with this? And a bunch of them, because we deal with a lot of sensitized people, they say, absolutely, we would want you to, because we believe we have a problem here. We don't want you to get sick also. There's a lot of change out there. Yeah. And I think we also have to be a little careful, though, when we talked about the sensitized individuals, they not only have heightened sensitivities, they have heightened awareness. And so I think that you are dealing with a different class of uh, potential clients. When we go into a commercial building, for example, and it's just a building manager, and I'm sorry, not just a building manager, but when the, the contact person is the building manager and they may be a contract building manager, they're not interested in having things look like it's serious or that it's a concern. They're, for the most part, their major thought process is how can we do this quietly and without raising a lot of concerns from the tenants and things like that. Agreed on that one, yes. So it's a pick and choose sort of situation as we go along. Okay. As long as we're talking about PPEs, a couple of things that are a little simpler that actually people just don't understand or know about. There's a lot of discussion in the different documents that make up the standard of care in terms of gloves and generally recommending some sort of surgical style glove underneath a work glove or double surgical style gloves. And that can get not only expensive, but frustrating from the standpoint of uh, trapping the heat and the sweat and course, if they're not a good nitrile glove, if they're just a latex glove, they all split and cut and fall off your fingers anyway. We've seen some real success going to the disposable mechanics style gloves, ones that have the Velcro at the gauntlet. Kimberly Clark has a disposable version of those gloves. So for like three to four bucks, you can get a pair as compared to like mechanics gloves, which can run as much as 12 or $20. But the idea that you're protecting your hands in terms of the work activities, but, and I know this is going to sound bad for some people, but having a breathable fabric on the non-work side, on the knuckle side, I haven't done any tape lifts on people's hands after they come out of that, but we're pretty rigorous about when we're working with contractors, making them clean hands and face wash like you should when you come out. So I just say, you know, if your procedures are such that you're going to protect yourself from any potential exposure. I don't know how the spores are actually going to get through the weave on this, but perhaps you're carrying something and you do get pressed against the back of your hand. You might get some potential exposure there, but we've got hand and face washing facilities and and certainly hand sanitizers and stuff that can help us with that, even if something does get through. But the benefit of being able to breathe, to cinch down to your suit without tape, to be able to readjust them, to protect your palms, to actually not rip, I'm a big fan of them. I really should do some, like I said, some testing. It just made me think about this. Maybe we could do some before and after tape test and hope that the person that I'm going to test isn't going to scream too much when the hair comes (laughs) off the back of their hand. (laughs) But, you know, you have to make sacrifices for science, Gene. Yeah, yeah, I agree. (laughs) I'm going to add in there 
from our standpoint, and this is something that we haven't officially tried, but we're actually going to start up doing remediation again because we're just having trouble finding good quality in contractors that we're seeing in our area. And I've got more faith in our crew when we build one than anyone else right now. We'll actually put this to the test on our side too. And, and here's what I'll say. Those type of gloves where there might be the risk of the fabric on the back, I think that risk is much less than the constant rips and tears and the untaping and re-putting on new gloves of the nitro gloves when you get into certain situations. Well, I would agree. And then there's also, like I said, the safety factor. If I'm crawling around in an attic, for example, and I have to crawl beam to beam and there's a splinter or there's a staple or there's something there, it's yep. going to go right through that nitro glove yep. as compared to having a little bit of protection with the fake leather that they put on the palms of these things or the different fabrics that they put on the palms. So, you know, I think we just need to be smarter and balance this stuff as we go along. Something else that I just, it just surprises me that uh, contractors are not using. Have you seen the stick on knee pads that go on the outside of your disposable suits? I have. We haven't tried them yet. They're the best. (laughs) It makes sense. Yeah. They're like a buck a pair or something like that. And they have, the adhesive side of it, they're kind of cut in a star pattern almost, which looks really weird, but it makes perfect sense when you pull a backing off and then bend your knee, which is if you, again, read the instructions, they tell you that you should put your suit on (laughs) and then bend your leg at a 90 degree at the knee and Mm -hmm. then put it over it. Right. And what happens is because it's cut in that, you know, it's got a number of uh, relief cuts in it, then it kind of bends over your knee. But if you do that, the way that they talk about, it ends up in the right place as well. So that when you do stand up, what I noticed, if you bend your knee and put it on like you're supposed to, and then you stand up, a lot of times it drops down a few inches. And and so if I'm putting it on just standing there straight, then I'm constantly tugging at it to try and crawl around as compared to bending your leg, putting on like you're supposed to read the instructions. People they are simple things, but there's actually good tips on that. (laughs) So yeah, try those. Let's talk a little bit about some of the items that are uh, transferring over. It's been in the industry for quite a while. The foamers have transferred uh, primarily from the food service and the agricultural service industry, Uh, but just a much better way to apply cleaners and disinfectants. The biggest reason for me is that you get less airborne. If you put things through a garden sprayer and there's questions now about quaternary ammoniums and the safety of that, long-term safety of them. I'm a big fan of essential oils and, you know, Benefect and some of the other ones that are out there. But even that, too much of anything, you know, is probably not good for us. And when we start vaporizing products, and then potentially exposing people to that, regardless of the type of the respirators that they may be wearing. I just am am nervous about that. So putting it into a foam, which tends to capture that, there's a whole lot less airborne dispersal when you use a foamer on these different uh, cleaners and disinfectants and things. So your antimicrobials, if they've got just even a little bit of uh, surfactant in them, they will foam because of the way the a piece of equipment is put together. You still pump it up like a garden sprayer, but instead of it coming out in a spray, it comes out as a foam. Probably the best thing about that, in my opinion, though, is I like the safety factor of it not putting as much into the air. 
but I just love the fact that you can see where you've applied your product. Correct. So you have that visual clue. When this light material comes out, a lot of these antimicrobials, you know, are, are water-based. Uh, we put them out in the light spray on a garden sprayer or something like that, or even a hand sprayer, you know, a pump sprayer. Depending on the conditions, and a lot of times if you're using negative pressure and moving air, it can be fairly dry in a number of these containment areas. You may not actually see where this stuff goes. You spray it on a light colored painted drywall wall. Within a few seconds, you're not going to be able to see where your coverage was. So just a lot of benefits to it. It actually increases your dwell time, which these products are supposed to have sometimes 30 seconds, sometimes two or three minutes of dwell time. I don't know how you get that without putting it into a foam. So kind of a big, big fan of those. Of course, the biggest and most accepted transfer, technology transfer on the work procedure side, in my opinion, has probably been the growth in the use of microfiber cloths. And even there, there's some controversy because people use the claws, but they don't know how to use them. So, for example, if you rub back and forth with a microfiber cloth, you're not being very effective. They're designed to move in one direction. Most of them doesn't matter whether you start moving them to the left or moving them to the right. But once you start in that direction, you should always move in that direction, which means you end up having to do an S pattern back and forth so that the leading edge on the cloth always remains the leading edge. Otherwise, you load it on a microscopic basis and then you unload part of it when you drag it back. Right. And you'll never see it. You just have to know that it's happening. Right. The other thing about microfiber cloths most people don't appreciate is that they are primarily final clean or final finish materials. They look impressive when you use them on a dirty floor because they, you pick them up and they're just full of dirt and everything. But they're so effective that they become overwhelmed fairly quickly. So if there's still visible debris or dust or anything, you should be using either a HEPA vacuum or some other cotton cloth or wiping cloth or something to get you there. But when you're down to final clean, and particularly, boy, trying to get mold spores off of plastic walls and the doors of your decon and things like that, you cannot beat a microfiber cloth because it actually has a static electric charge to it. And it's greater than the static electric charge that holds a lot of the spores to the plastic. So, and you would think, well, you know, I've got a big HEPA vacuum and a bristle brush going, but at that microscopic level, the forces, the chemical and electrochemical forces that hold it to the plastic can be greater even than the the vacuum. So I know a lot of contractors who have actually adjusted their work procedure. We talk all the time about HEPA sandwich in uh, training courses where you do HEPA vacuuming and then some sort of wet cleaning like a foam cleaning or spray or whatever. And then the sandwich part of it being the HEPA, being the bread, if you will, of the sandwich, you do the HEPA vacuuming first and the HEPA vacuuming third. Many of our contractors have moved to a HEPA pizza where they do HEPA HEPA as the the crust of the pizza and then the foam cleaning and then microfiber cleaning at the end rather than a second HEPA vacuuming. Yeah, we would do that and then we might enhance that and do selective final HEPA in certain areas, especially on the floor. And then we'll, we'll, we'll usually double clean the floor. Yeah. And then of course you have to be careful with that because 
the microfiber cloths are not going to work very well in certain areas. They don't work very well on wooden studs. So if you've got an open wall cavity, it might work on the flat side. Of, you know, if you have drywall on the back side that is still staying there or something like that. But uh, brick, uh, you know, poured cement, block, uh, wooden studs, uh, plywood. Uh, well, plywood, they usually mm-hmm. do pretty well. But OSB, you know, forget that. They're just, they're too grabby for those aggressive surfaces and things. So you end up leaving more of the cloth behind than you do actually picking up some of the debris. So understand it. Let me also just share one other thing with you. There's a lot of people that do restoration work. And of course, they're used to cleaning contents or cleaning their own shop rags, uh, you know, for fire losses, things like that. So they have laundry facilities and they buy the microfiber cloths and then they just launder them. And boy, if there's any place where you have to read instructions and follow instructions, it would be cleaning microfiber mops and cloths and things like that. If they are designed to be cleaned, there's usually uh, like a eight to 12 step washing process mm-hmm. that specifies water temperatures and dwell times and spin times and all this stuff, which of course no one ever looks at. They just throw it in the washing machine and hit, you know, heavy load or whatever. But if you do that, you run too hot of water, you throw them in a dryer when you're done. They're not supposed to be dried other than anything other than very low temperature. You end up melting parts of the different microfiber pieces. And then you're essentially sealing up all the little gaps, which is where the microscopic particles get picked up. So consequently, we're really pushing and seeing more and more people going to the disposable microfiber mops and things, the cloths and the mops. Just single use, even if you do a final clean on that plastic and it doesn't look dirty when you're done wiping that plastic wall or that door, it gets thrown away. And I understand, you know, from an ecological standpoint that we don't want to just like throw everything away, but you're balancing here. And question is we're trying to protect people's health and i think there's ecological ways to take care of our waste and many communities we're doing that but at some point we just have to understand that the improving an individual's health is worth it from some of the ecological things i wonder also if there was a study between how much we use in water to wash versus the disposable anyway Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's another thing they did. And I know that this might not be directly applicable, but there's been tons of studies done in regards to washable diapers and disposable diapers. Sure. And from an ecological standpoint, the interesting thing is it depends on where you are. So if you're in a desert community, for example, they actually talk about disposable diapers being more ecologically conscious than washable diapers just because of the the availability of the clean water and stuff so just a little aside that's kind of funny because if you remember how we ended the last podcast we actually talked about dirty diapers (laughs) i don't know what is it dean we always get back to diapers (laughs) (laughs) applicable it just works (laughs) <laughs> yeah, our kids are older. I don't understand what this is all about. We must be having flashbacks to our child-rearing days or something. Bringing it home. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And there's lots of things that are happening in terms of this technology transfer. What I did want to point out, however, is that it even gets down to the end of the process. So when we're doing 
post-remediation testing and things like that. And certainly there's a whole bunch of other technologies I could talk about in terms of the actual work processes. But in the testing, I think it's fascinating because there is, I've been in the industry long enough, I saw Aerocell and Sportrap cassettes replace, for the most part, replace cultured samples. And as a matter of fact, I was a big fan and a big supporter of that because I used to bug me that I have to spend all that time and effort trying to get cultured samples, get them right. And the cost of those things to get good information for the clients and how Mm -hmm. the aerosols and the, and the other spore trap cassettes have improved that process for us. I think even better than that is when you have things that are direct read instruments that can help you determine in the field where you stand. So one of the things I've been encouraging, not just for mold, but for water losses and even fire losses and things, is using ATP samplers because they're inexpensive. Once you buy the meter, they're about 3 to $5 per sample. They just they give you a general indication of cleanliness in regards to biological matter, which uh, in the mold arena is just perfect for us because if it's got biological matter, I don't really care if it flashes, if it's mold spores or skin cells or bacteria. That just means that it's not a clean surface and we should go on from there. Food residue, whatever's making that meter flash, it's telling you that it's not clean. So as a general cleanliness step before we do tape samples on surfaces or something like that, if it can't pass an ATP sample, what makes you think that it's going to pass a tape sample? And if you've got a number of the surfaces that are contaminated, why would you think that you're going to pass an air sample? Because what's on the surface is eventually get back up in the air and vice versa. I think there's probably a day when you and I should talk about ATP and probably how that works. Because I think for some, even for some homeowners in certain cases, that might actually be an option for them also uh, to be able to check even their own work. Uh, I realize, you know, the instrument has a cost of their, or a, a cost to it, but Maybe there's a few people that get together, you know, in a family or something, and they share the cost of that. So some of these tools, as they get, as they reduce in price, I think are going to become more consumer friendly also. Right. Yeah, there's, in some respects, there's a consumer version of the ATP, but they just break it down and they look at specific enzymes. So there's mold color change sticks and things like that. Now, those tend to be specific to different species of mold. So you can get a stachybotrys test uh, swab and you can get an aspergillus penicillium test swab and things like that. But under the right circumstances, I mean, if that is the primary contaminant in your home, those can be very effective at $10 sample, but give you immediate feedback as compared to even having to buy a $1,200 meter. So, but yeah, I would love to come back and perhaps do a little bit more extensive discussion of ATP. I also did want to mention that there's the potential, I'm I'm not 100% sold on it, but I'm watching it very closely. I mean, there's the potential for the direct read instruments like the Instascope and some of these other devices that are out there that are using artificial intelligence to analyze the Basically, they're particle counters with enhanced diagnostics. And the concern I have in those sorts of uh, situations and those sorts of uh, pieces of equipment is that it's all about the artificial intelligence and the software that's in there. And can they mimic through software what we can see under the microscope when I have a trained analyst looking at it? And this has been the holy grail in the asbestos field since 
the 1960s or 70s, late 60s, early 70s, where they first started thinking about whether laser-style particle counters could be adapted to identify asbestos fibers. People have tried to use them for other OSHA-regulated contaminants. The move into the mold field, I think, is uh, interesting and aggressive one. And I'm certainly not dismissing them. I am being a bit cautious. And you know, I know that you're an Instascope user and things. Yep. So yep. I, would, I would just say that for a while anyway, at least when it's, there's legal liabilities involved, I would always at least double up. Even if the Instascope was the primary inspection method, I would probably take some side-by-side samples just so I've got some. Yeah, we agree with that. But it is a technology to watch. And I think they're getting, they meaning like the manufacturers and the people who are looking at this. I talked with um, one of the owners of just a regular laser particle counter, and they've got some fascinating things that are in the pipeline in terms of some of this technology. So that's the other thing. The technology transfer can be a tease, if you will, because you hear about different things and sometimes they pan out and they make a splash in the industry. You know, the other thing we should do, Dean, we should come back someday and talk about air purifiers, all the different types of technology that's out there, the photocatalytic, the uh, different uh, filtration styles. I don't know if you've heard about the PICO, which is the photoelectrical catalytic and things like that. So, yeah, there's a lot of these technologies are coming from different areas and coming over. Quite a bit of the move toward uh, hydrogen peroxide, for example, came from the beverage and the food service industry, where that's been a, a mainstay for them that cleans things without leaving residue that impacts the taste of food. But it does take care of the bacteria and things. And you just, when you open up your eyes and you just look around at some of these allied industries, it's so fascinating to me that that I think the mold industry is going to continue to advance for the next 10 to 20 years easily, driven not so much by the standards and regulations as it was the first 15 to 20 years, but I think it's the technology that's going to be driving the industry for the next 10 to 15 years. Agreed. You know, even something as simple as a sticky walk-off mat from the clean room industry. Oh, yeah. Right? Just something that simple that can help. And yet we don't see it as often as, uh, so we specify that in a lot of our projects where we write the requirements or the specifications, but quite bluntly, I don't see it as often as it should. To me, low cost, simple device really prevents a lot of cross-contamination. Yep. Should be on every project from my standpoint. Yep. Yep. That's good. All right. You got anything else or what's your final words? Well, I think that I did wrap it up there by saying that the, transfer is going to continue. We've got many other things I could talk about. Like I said, the technology transfer into the air purifiers and stuff like that. But I would, uh, and filtration and home filtration, even, uh, you know, what you're putting on your furnaces and your HVAC units, things like that. There's just so much that's happening in the industry. Some of it good, some of it bad. This idea that we can take a UV bulb and stick it in our furnace and somehow life is going to be good and it's going to take care of all of our problems. It's just, some of that stuff is just junk. But, you know, that's what happens when the industry is dynamic and when people are trying to make a difference and or when people are trying to take advantage of the industry as well. So read the instructions. If it doesn't make common sense, be careful about trying to employ it. Practice in some areas. The good contractors do this stuff. 
they take it a step at a time rather than just jumping in with two feet and then finding out that six months later, there's a $20,000 piece of equipment sitting in the back of the warehouse that nobody's used. Yes. So, yeah, I agree. So, you know, it's really interesting. Everything that we talked about today and what we know a little bit about the people who listen to this podcast at this point is we've got a combination of consumers, but we also have some remediators that are listening. And so what I really appreciate about today is not only do the remediators, if they've never heard some of the things that you've talked about and thinking outside the box, that was, I've always been kind of in that realm. So when I trained up with you and in your classrooms, it's always presented to think outside the box, always try to improve every job you're on from the previous job you were, and don't limit yourself as to the tools or the methods that you can use as long as you're maintaining that foundation and those principles to cause no harm to your workers, cause no harm to the clients and have a successful job. And so some of the things that you shared today, I know that some of the remediators probably haven't considered. And some of these things are real game changers. We didn't talk about the Pittsburgh protocol. That was brought up again at Healthy Buildings. And I think that was, what, back in 07 or 06 that Cliff Zlotnick came up with that. And I know there are problems with it. But if it's thought through and done correctly, you can potentially finish a mold remediation job in twice the amount of, or in half the amount of time that it would normally take to do according to the current IICRC standard of care. And it's clean. It's very clean. And so that's the one encouragement to me is the help that remediators will get from this. But then the second thing is all of the consumers, the homeowners, and the occupants that are listening to this are going to get a special inside look, so to speak. So when they have a remediator come on site, they can watch for these things. And if they see a bunch of these improvements and efficiencies, and they see the kind of care that that the remediator is providing in their setup even, they'll know that they've got a quality contractor or not. Yeah, yep. And then those results usually show up in the samples at the end and how the client feels and just the whole success of the project. I would, however, just say that part of this is just being open to listen to the experiences of other individuals. I have the benefit of doing that as an instructor and teaching these various classes all around the world and just getting a, a variety of viewpoints. I also have some experience with that or at least a value. That's one of the reasons I still continue to serve on the Environmental Council of the RIA, because you just you get in contact with a lot of people who have a lot of these different ideas and who are creative enough and concerned about their industry enough that they actually want to volunteer to serve. Those are many times the cream of the crop, if you will. So I, I would point out that I hope that I shared some things today with your listeners and your viewers of the podcast that are helpful, but understand that they're not all my ideas. I just am the beneficiary of picking them up from other really smart people in the industry. And I you know, have the ability to kind of catalog them and share them with other people. So for all of the professional colleagues that I've met over the years who have introduced me to all these things, I want to say thank you. And I would also encourage other people when you find something that seems to work for you, check it out. Talk to Dean. You can call me at uh, Wondermakers or just email me at map at wondermakers.com. And just we're always happy to take a minute or two, uh, you know, 10 minutes and chat with people about whether that idea makes sense or not. And 
I'm pretty open-minded, but I'll also tell you where you might have to be careful and just practice some things because you don't want to go in and experiment on someone's house. We've had too many cases where we've had to come in afterwards because a contractor experimented. The experiment went bad. They didn't think it through, didn't understand. They believed a salesperson. Uh, This is just going to take care of everything. And uh, you can create sensitized individuals that way by doing bad remediation or just doing bad technology transfers. Yeah. So just to be very clear with people about what Michael said about reading directions, he means going beyond the marketing materials, actually going to the spec sheets and the documents, the technical documents about how equipment and how products work. And I say that especially for our consumers or homeowners out there. Because too many, I find too often, reading the marketing material, and actually probably just as guilty would be the remediators, now that I'm thinking about it, leaving the marketing material and not actually understanding how it works. And so that is really important. And I'm going to make one more plug. This, to me, is one of the most important works that you can have access to and that you should have as a reference. Whether you go through RAA training or not, or whether you're familiar with it or not, there is a book that's available at the Wondermakers Environmental website called Fungal Contamination, A Comprehensive Guide to Remediation. And if you want to know how remediation works and the best guide that you can possibly have, it will supplement and it will improve your IICRC training. If you are trained that way, it will be that book and it's worth every penny and everyone should have one who's doing this work. Wow, I really appreciate that, Dean. Uh, we put a lot of effort into that and working on the next edition as we speak. So bless you. Perfect. Well, I look forward to our next segment. We're going to bring something, again, probably new to a lot of people. And today was absolutely fantastic. Great information. And I really appreciate you coming on and and helping with this. Looking forward to being with you next month. Thank you. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Manage Mold podcast. Do you have a question that you'd like me to answer raw and uncut on the podcast? All you need to do is head over to Apple Podcasts and do three simple things. Leave a rating and review telling me what you think of the podcast. In that review, ask anything you want related to your home's health. And if you want a shout out, leave your Instagram handle or name. That's all. Then listen in to hear your question answered live, raw, and uncut. This is Dean Malstead. Join us next time on Manage Mold.